Support for this podcast comes from the Phil Smith Center for Free Enterprise at the FAU College of Business. The Phil Smith Center for Free Enterprise supports the vision and strategic plan of the College of Business to advance thought leadership in business. The center supports chaired professorships and research, educational programs for faculty members and students, distinguished visiting faculty, along with a lecture series and other educational programs focused on the principles of free enterprise and how those principles affect growth and prosperity. Learn more at business.fau.edu forward slash Phil Smith. Hello, my name is Dan Gropper, and I am the Dean of the College of Business at Florida Atlantic University. Today, we are joined by a distinguished visitor from Rice University, Dr. Robin Sickles. And Dr. Sickles is a chaired professor at Rice. He has a long, distinguished career uh, as an econometrician, and we're very glad to welcome him to Florida Atlantic University's College of Business. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed our visit. Very good. And uh, Robin is someone I've gotten to know personally over the last year or two with some mutual friends, but I'd first learned of his work when I was back working on my dissertation, when he was a young professor just starting out, and I was working on my dissertation uh, research trying to measure productivity in banking, looking at economies of scale and scope, and uh, Robin and some of his colleagues had just published some very interesting and really path-breaking kind of econometric uh, methods looking at how to measure productivity. So, Robin, if you can just give us a little bit of background on how that got all got started uh, when you were in graduate school in the early years of that. I think that that frontier estimation really is something that's made quite a uh, contribution uh, to the econometrics literature. Well, thank you for uh, your obviously very thoughtful comments uh, about me and <laughs> what I've done. Uh, it, it, it was rather an interesting time to be at UNC, Chapel Hill, which is where I did my graduate work. It had been a university which uh, had started a great deal of, of work. Uh, Sidney Afriot had been very much in play in, in developing uh, sort of the, the theory of uh, productivity and how you measured inefficiency and, and a variety of, of, of factors that neoclassical econo- economists tended not to think about because, of course, inefficiency is not something that, that uh, you'd think would be um, – able to persist in a market. Uh, you know, Stigler's arguments would be that you would be, uh, you know, out of the market soon enough if you didn't, if you weren't efficient. So it was a, it was a research area that didn't have a great deal of support, at least by neoclassical economists. What, what I was working on in graduate school actually was limited dependent variables and trying to deal with uh, continuous discrete uh, processes and, and link them in, in simultaneous equation settings. Um, it turns out that the stochastic frontier model is a special case of, of the limited dependent variable system that I, that I worked on and it was part of my dissertation. And I remember Peter Schmidt asking me uh, or telling me that he had this uh, work that he was doing with Knox Lovell. And uh, that it basically used the same uh, mixture of a continuous and a truncated dependent variable to look at, uh, at inefficiency shortfalls. Um, 
and asked if it would be okay if they just pursued it and whether I wanted to, to work on it or not. I said, no, I'm too busy. I'm trying to finish up. So that was the iconic Eichner-level uh, Schmidt paper that's cited uh, tremendously in the literature. After uh, – and, and the interesting thing about that, that period, this, this was in 77 that that paper appeared, but it was in 75 that we were discussing these issues. Um, 77, 78 was a period where an enorm- enormous number of things happened that, that sort of dovetailed, I think, your career to some extent, but, but certainly mine, in, into sort of directing me towards doing empirical work in, uh, in that area. Uh, there was a, a sort of a, an amazing sandbox of data that was uh, generated by deregulation, by uh, Carter's deregulations of uh, air transport, of, uh, of rails, of uh, trucking. And you had this sandbox of, uh, of data. And of course, all of these were federal agents, you know, were overseen by federal agencies. So there was data. Uh, a little bit later, the same thing happened with uh, bill, the bill system. When uh, and of course, the the issue was to how you know to what extent was it was inefficiency ameliorated by uh, deregulatory reforms. Yeah, and if I could jump in just a second, when I was what I was looking at in my dissertation research was how deregulation and technological change had affected firm efficiency in the banking exactly. industry. And so, as you say, there was this deregulatory wave. And Neil Regal, uh, yeah. Exactly. And uh, the branch banking restrictions that were kind of falling by the wayside. And, and it's an interesting political side note in a way. Reagan's name gets more associated with deregulation, but a lot of that did get started under Jimmy Carter, as you say. Absolutely. You know, Alfred Kahn, of course, and I was working uh, well. So, so eventually, what what transpired was that there was this work of Peters and uh, Dennis Eigner's and uh, Knox Lovell's, and about the same time on the on the on the management side, on the on the uh, uh, business side, management science side, uh, Edward uh, or Eduardo War, uh, Rhodes, uh, Bill Cooper, and uh, Abe Charns developed an algorithm essentially to estimate uh, the a model that Afriot, Sydney Afriot, had to, had actually put forth some years before. But it was a, an algorithm to use the simplex to, to essentially frame the model in terms of a linear program. And you had this software that was now available to to uh, estimate these inefficiencies and, and how they may have changed uh, after deregulation. And then nonlinear optimization had come into uh, to be something that was that was accessible. Uh, panel data techniques also uh, were were just beginning to be taught in graduate programs. And so in my case, uh, you know, I had all of all of that sort of coming together. And then the last part of the, of the puzzle was that I, when I was at GW, which is my first job in D.C., I was asked to um, work on a project for, uh, for uh, John Kendrick. And John was, you know, a major player in productivity. He had been working for the Air Transport Association, and they were interested in – when uh, Khan deregulated the airlines, of course, under Jimmy Carter, he was interested in – or the Air Transport Association was interested in, in anticipating what the union uh, demands would be because it was a heavily unionized uh, – uh, commercial aviation was heavily unionized at the time. You know, how much of that productivity growth they were going to want in, in uh, salary increases. And so what he wanted – 
what they wanted was to have somebody tease out the specific productivity gains that were attributed to each of the factors of production. So, you know, the, the thinking in the airlines is that the, the labor didn't do it. It was the introduction of uh, wide-bodied uh, planes and getting away from turbo uh, jets and uh, and and or turboprops. So that's what I did, and I and to and to do that essentially required me to take all of this learning that I had had in all these other topics and apply them to productivity. And, um, you know, that that uh, worked. Uh, and Peter Schmidt and I uh, uh, got an NSF to look at panel data extensions, and that's when we published our, our 1984 journey, JBS piece, and then we extended that with the work on... Uh, time-varying efficiency with Chris Cornwell, a student of his who, by that time, he had moved to Michigan State, who was at Michigan State. Um, and, you know, one thing that led to another, and, you know, here I am. <laughs> well, it's, it, it's great. One of the things I will say that I always liked about that is that I think the, the methodologies that you and your colleagues helped develop provide a fairly rigorous framework to evaluate policy changes, uh, to evaluate you know, say if you're going to impose a regulation, what kind of cost would that look like? What the, what would that do? Uh, how might that be distributed across labor and capital? Uh, so it provides a pretty solid framework to uh, analyze those kind of potential things. At, at least that's the claim that I've made in some of my papers in the banking and savings and loan industry. Uh, I also think that uh, one of the things I sort of admire is when you're part of a group that really helps work together and develop these new techniques, you're really uh, creating something that didn't previously exist. You're building, of course, off of what came before, but that sort of advances the techniques out a fairly good way, and then other people come and kind of fill in in the middle. And having that ability and that foresight and being part of a creative group of, of scholars that helps advance the techniques out a pretty good ways is something that I think is a uh, – it doesn't happen all the time. Well, it doesn't happen all the time. And in my case, I mean, I, I consider myself just, you know, it's blind luck. I mean, here I was at North Carolina, and Knox Lovell was there, and Peter Schmidt was there. And um, then I go to GW, and John Kendrick is there. I mean, I had no—I I had gone to North Carolina originally to work with Harold Hotelling, who died the summer I got there. So, you know, this was all sort of serendipitous. Um, you know, I had the training, but I—you know, the, the circumstances, which, of course, I took advantage of, uh, were just remarkable for me at that time. Well, well, I do appreciate your modesty, but I think your, your second point— really is quite salient here. Uh, the question whenever there's some professional setback, and, and I, I don't want to undersell uh, a great man's you know, passing like Harold Hotelling and just calling it merely a setback, but obviously when you go to graduate school, professors leave, professors move, things go. But what are, when you're at a great research university, other professors are also there. And so as a graduate student, you figure out who you're going to work with and how you're going to make your own way. And then ultimately as a professor, when you go to George Washington University, you find other good colleagues to work with. You find good projects to get involved in and you bring your skills to bear. So the fact that you succeed under these alternate uh, scenarios is not merely chance. It is. It requires a little good luck, but it also requires hard work and ability. And uh, so, I congratulate you on that. Now, let's talk a little bit. When you left GW, 
Uh, where did you go next? Well, I went to the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, I had been asked to visit to take a position of someone who had left rather quickly, and they needed a, uh, an econometrician to teach at that time in the School of Public uh, and Urban Policy, to teach the PhD students the econometrics, which is what I taught at uh, GW and what I was trained to do. And so I had an option to stay at GW um, for another year. I'd get tenure and uh, or leave GW, which was the only option I had, and take a one-year visiting job at, G- at uh, Penn, which is what I did. So I left, uh, I left uh, GW, took a one-year visiting job at uh, Penn, then um, gave a, a lecture, was hired on the spot, and, uh, you know, things have uh, sort of turned out pretty good. Well, one of the uh, things that I think uh, you, you've shared with me before – uh, is that you've had a lot of your prior students go on to have quite successful careers, too. Can you talk a little bit about that? I have, and I've been very proud of that. Um, I guess I'll name a couple. Uh, uh, Lars Hendrick Roller was a student of mine at GW. He uh, went to uh, NCAD. In fact, I taught at NCAD, the European Institute of Business Administration, with him for, I guess, three years in uh, Fontainebleau uh, when we started, when, when he helped start the Ph.D. program in finance there. Um, and I was a resource they brought in to, to teach those courses. Then uh, Hendrik went to Germany, went to Berlin. He was from uh, – he's German. And uh, ultimately, uh, after he and I worked together on a number of projects when he was in Berlin, he took a position uh, – uh, as the president of a new university in Berlin, after a stint at uh, as the uh, under under the chief economist essentially of the competition directorate at uh, the uh, European Union, and he's now the uh, chief economic advisor of uh, Angela Merkel. So yeah, I'd say that was a pretty good uh, pretty sounds- good student. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, I've had others uh, who have been very successful. Jenny Williams is a full professor at uh, at Melbourne University. She's uh, one of the top uh, labor economists in uh, in the field of uh, of uh, high risk factors to uh, for adolescents and, and young young adults. Uh, she's quite uh, quite good and quite uh, successful. Uh, I've had uh, I have a PhD student of mine is Pervez Captain. He's uh, been the uh, head of worldwide uh, transfer pricing operations for Ernst and Young uh, for at least the last fifteen years in their energy practice. And uh, it's through Pervez that we've been we've made a lot of inroads. He, uh, he's on the advisory committees at uh, Rice. He's in Houston, and I think I've placed seven PhD students at Ernst and Young in various parts of the world and various uh, parts of uh, the U.S., uh, you know, via uh, uh, Pervez. So those are three. Yeah, Yeah, very interesting. (laughs) Well, and I think, too, probably uh, there are probably dozens of of students who might have written under somebody else but who took econometrics and statistics uh, in their graduate programs uh, under your under your guidance. Well, so. uh, one of the more recent ones, I was at a conference uh, at Rice, and uh, it was in public finance, and I was given a small little talk about the fact that all these students from all my uh, different universities seem to be at the same conference, and I named them, and then some guy says, oh, you forgot me, Professor Sickles. And I said, oh, Kevin, yeah, yeah, sorry, I didn't see you down there. That's Kevin Hassett, the uh, 
the, the head of the Council of Economic Advisors yeah. under, uh, under Trump. <laughs> Very interesting. I taught him his econometrics at, at Penn. Yeah, and he was at the American Enterprise Institute <laughs> And was at the American then. Enterprise Institute yeah. before that. And I'll, I'll have to say that the president of the American Enterprise Institute got his master's degree in economics here. Well done. Uh, at FAU and, and in fact, uh, will be our distinguished alumnus and will be honored later this year at the, oh, at the spring very graduation. Impressive. So we're very proud of what Arthur Brooks has done and uh, helping him here make the transition from being a French horn player uh, to being a well-trained economist. And uh, so, but we can't claim too much credit for the success he's had since then, but we are proud, very proud be. to have him as an alumnus. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. I understand you have a book that's about to be completed. Well, we have actually completed the book. It's uh, it's coming out in Cambridge University Press. It's a, a book on measurement of productivity and efficiency, uh, theory and applications. It's a 600-plus page uh, textbook, graduate textbook, and, uh, you know, I think high-end un- un- undergraduate uh, with uh, problems and uh, a website with software and uh, a fairly, I think, cohesive and comprehensive uh, overview of the field, both neoclassical and uh, and uh, theory that speaks more to uh, behavioral economics as, it, as it's applied to uh, production as opposed to consumer theory. Uh, focusing on both management as well as on uh, uh, statistical treatments in, in benchmarking and in evaluating uh, efficient firms and uh, and you know I, I didn't mention this earlier but the this whole methodology is actually adopted by uh, a number of European countries a number of countries in uh, Latin America Central Latin America to establish rates in uh, uh, all the re- regulated uh, industries. Um, in fact, Germany, I think, has in its constitution that you have to use uh, a combination of stochastic frontier and, and data development analysis to establish the, the ranking of firms and how inefficient they are so that when they use their algorithm for price, you know, for setting rates, they can use the those numbers to incentivize the firms that are not doing well and not, not in the course of doing that, uh, um, uh, dock the, stu- the, the the firms that are doing well. So it's a uh, it's an algorithm that's based on these techniques. Well, Robin, it's a pleasure to have you come visit uh, the College of Business at Florida Atlantic University, uh, and it's personally a, a, a great pleasure for me to have. Uh, gotten to meet someone whose work I respect and admire and have cited, and it's helped uh, me publish papers of my own earlier in my career, and uh, and to have you here to help educate our graduate students and speak to our faculty. Uh, it's been a pleasure, so thank you for coming. Well, it's been an honor to, to be here, and I, I might mention it's also been an honor to be able to have cited your research and Steve Cadell's in my, uh, in my forthcoming book. Well, thank thank you you very much. much. We appreciate it. To learn more about our activities and upcoming events, please see our College of Business website, business.fau.edu. Dean Gropper Presents is part of the FAU College of Business Podcast Network. To learn more, visit us at business.fau.edu forward slash podcasts and follow Dean Gropper on Twitter at FAU Business Dean.